Hello and welcome to the Van Podcast, a podcast series from Visual Artist Ireland. My name is Joanne Laws and I'm Features Editor of the Visual Artist Newsheet. Published every two months, the Van Podcast features online conversations with various contributors to each issue of the Van. This gives opportunities to discuss some of the ideas arising from published texts, while also offering insights into their wider practice. Today I'm joined online by Donegal-based artist Cornelius Brown and London-based artist Frank Wasser, both of whom developed columns for the November-December 2020 issue of the Visual Artist Newsheet. First up is Cornelius Brown, an artist whose practice explores plein air painting. As a regular contributor to Van, Cornelius has beautifully articulated the seasonal fluctuations of painting outdoors, as well as the theoretical and material concerns in his work. His most recent column for Van is titled Nocturnes and focuses on his impulse to paint outdoors at night. Um, so you have uh, you've been a regular contributor to the Visual Artist News Sheet since the summer of last year, 2019, um, and this has focused on your practice as a plein air painter. Um, maybe you could start by outlining some of your background. Um, did you originally train as a painter, um, and what led you to focus predominantly on landscape painting, creating mostly outdoors? Uh, yeah, I was a painting student at NCAD for four years and mm-hmm. that didn't go terribly well. I, unfortunately, they were probably among the least creative years of my entire life. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, when I got my degree, I didn't paint at all for 21 years. Uh, before going to college, I painted all of the time. There literally weren't enough hours in the day. Uh, From about the age of five or six, I spent almost all my time making uh, little graphic novels, uh, Mm -hmm. I suppose they were, although I had never seen a graphic novel at that stage. And then around about 11, 12, I discovered painting. And uh, first of all, I was just using household paints, uh, boat paint, really anything I could get my hands on. And then I uh, you know, started, uh, got gouache, watercolours, oils, you know, anything at all. And uh, wh- basically when my bedroom had filled up with paintings, uh, uh, I'd even painted on the walls, I, I moved outdoors and uh, that was, it felt incredible. It felt like the biggest studio in the world. It was uh, very liberating. Yeah. And um, then uh, a school trip when I was about uh, 15, I managed to see the, the Ross Getty 4 exhibition and uh, it was seeing the outdoorsy works of Richard Long and uh, Kiefer that really rooted me to the spot mm-hmm. and there and then it was an overwhelming experience anyway anyway because I'd never been in a gallery or museum before but um, I, I remember standing in front of Richard Long's stuff and thinking I want to be an artist and soon after that I met the English artist uh, Derek Hill Mm-hmm. And uh, he was incredibly encouraging, particularly of my outdoor uh, landscapes. And um, he had a, done a brilliant retrospective exhibition here in Donegal. And I was at the opening and he led me around some of the pictures and he was telling me, uh, he was guiding me through how he painted uh, those huge, magnificent uh, plein air paintings he made up on Tory Island. And, uh, and then after that as well, I became aware of James Dixon and the Tory Island School of Painters, who were also encouraged by Derek Hill. And, and uh, you know, all of that fed, you know, that was fuel to the fire. And I was literally, by the time I got to NCAD, I literally I was painting around the clock and I just stopped in college. And then what led me back to painting was uh, when I had children, uh, I would go on these very, very, very slow walks every day on this one road. And they were seeing the world with fresh eyes, mm-hmm. marveling over everything. I'd just be standing there. And I kind of started marveling too. And eventually I started seeing brushstrokes in the sky, the sea, across the fields, the trees. Yeah. So I decided I better get an easel. And uh, I've been painting since, and that's about uh, seven, eight years now. 
Wow. Well, I mean, it has been really lovely to observe how your columns have kind of followed the seasons in a way, almost like some sort of uh, journal or memoir. Yeah. Um, so you, you've tracked your thoughts and your activities in line with the shifting weather and light conditions, as well as the changing natural landscape. So maybe you could um, discuss some of the practicalities of painting outdoors all, all year round. What are some of the obvious environmental challenges of plein air painting, especially during the encroaching um, autumn and winter months? Yeah, um, where I paint here in Donegal is very raw. It's very exposed. You really are out there uh, with the elements. And I suppose, you know, that's the, what you might think of as challenges are exactly what I'm, you know, running towards. That's what I, what I need. Uh, I'm, you know, trying to, you know, as much as a landscape painter, I kind of think of myself as a, a nature painter, uh, a weather painter, even a wild painter. Yeah. And, uh, I suppose ideally what I'd like to do is uh, co-paint uh, these pictures with the elements with, uh, and, um, you know, so um, I, I want the barrier between myself and the subject to break down and that's what the wind and the rain and the cold uh, do. And, um, you know, I, I love it when the subject becomes this substance that is almost trying to stop me painting. You know, I love it when uh, making any kind of mark at all is a massive achievement, you know? And, uh, you know, the, 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 the nicest thing someone can say about one of my paintings is that, you know, people have said, when I, uh, when I look at that, uh, I, I feel like shivering. I feel like turning the heat up, you know? <laughs> and, and uh, you know, if I set out to make a really cold feeling painting, I would not know how to do it but it's because when I'm on a hillside you know I've been so so cold despite my layers upon layers uh, that literally I am right I'm I am the subject you know the paintings are about my experience of being on that spot at that moment yeah. and you know I could I could not make a cold painting I could not make a stormy painting if I wasn't you know in the center trying to make it against almost the will the force of the subject itself and so all, all of the, you know, challenges uh, and the things and the practicalities, uh, the things you've got to do to paint like that, you know, like, you know, if you, sometimes I have to gather stones to pile around the easel to make sure it doesn't blow off. And again, that links you to the subject, you know, it, you, you have it in your hands, you're lifting it up, you're searching, you're rooting, or mm -hmm. sometimes I have to back so far into a tree that I'm almost in, entombed uh, amongst the leaves and the branches because otherwise everything will fly away. But again, you're literally embedded in the subject, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I suppose like uh, uh, that's why, you know, when uh, this time of year, you know, with autumn uh, coming in, I, I'm relishing that I'm, you know, actually more eager to get out there and, you know, get drenched and get blown around and get tossed around and get roughed up by the weather. Yeah, Joan Erdley, when she was up painting in Catterline, uh, she would often leave her, her finished paintings outdoors for a few days. Mm -hmm. Again, she would anchor them with stones against the wind. And she, would, she said once that she wanted them to absorb the atmosphere of the place, to uh, physically uh, join to the place. And... Uh, there was almost a sense because she's someone that really took on the weather very very uh, cruelly exposed uh, part of scotland and she it's, it's like she felt her paintings had to take on the weather as well and my paintings do they really have often been you know by the time they get into a frame they've really been roughed up uh, and uh, and you know they're, they're quite weathered and and that's so the the challenges are things that, that i completely embrace they're things that I need and, uh, you know, uh, and it is, and I like seeing things in the round. That's why it has to be all, all year round and all times of the day and night. You know, yeah. you want to, you know, you want to see, you know, whatever this field, this tree, uh, this old building, you, you want to see it, you know, early in the morning, night, winter, summer, the whole way around. And this, and you keep building on this as the years go by. So, uh, you know, so yeah, often, you know, if, if the wind picks up, then I pick up my easel and I go. Brilliant. Um, maybe just in terms of the writing, I mean, um, your first column for Van was a skills column, focusing on practicalities of outdoor painting, but your talents as a writer were very clear from the outset. 
with your uh, poetic phrasing and your natural capacity for metaphor. Um, you also have a natural flair for memoir um, and you, you disclosed insights that were quite personal and quite moving. Um, so has writing become an important aspect of your practice as an artist? I mean, do you see painting and writing as being interwoven in some way? Yeah, I'm not sure, to be honest. Uh, you know, I lean towards uh, memoir uh, when I write about art because for me, all art uh, grows out of everyday life. Yeah. Uh, and I lean towards probably metaphor and memoir because I think it's uh, writing about art is seductively impossible, you know, uh, and very, very difficult. Um, Virginia Woolf published a, a wonderful essay about Walter Sickert in the mid 1930s, and uh, she talks about the silent kingdom of painting and that painters go to this silent land that writers cannot follow them into. And so I do think that, uh, uh, you know, although there are painters who write beautifully and vice versa, I'm not sure to what extent the two are interwoven. I actually started writing when I thought I had lost painting uh, nice. towards the end of art college. And I had a, a, my first short story accepted for publication a couple of months after finishing NCAD. And, you know, and I, and I, you know, I did really want to replace uh, painting. I had to, you know, replace painting, I felt, with, and writing is what came naturally. And I got a place on uh, Trinity uh, College uh, writing workshop with the playwright Thomas Kilroy, which was wonderful. Uh, one type of writing that I do think can be can interweave well with painting is screenwriting. Uh, I got I, during the nineteen from actually from that workshop I I got into screenwriting. There was a another person on it uh, was the filmmaker Geraldine Creed, and she was uh, directing at the time a film called The Sun, the Moon, and the Stars. And I was intrigued by this, and I asked her to bring in her her script. And I loved the format of the script, you know, and um, the dialogue had to be so many inches from the, you know, the margin. And uh, I remember being uh, quite in awe when she told me that properly made, each page will equal one minute on the screen. And I thought that just grabbed me completely. And I, uh, mm -hmm. so I, so I, I did start writing a lot of scripts and making little films. And the kind of film I was interested in was. I suppose guerrilla filmmaking, you know, mm -hmm. uh, low budget. And I think that has carried into the way I paint, you know, uh, guerrilla filmmakers try to catch everything really quickly. They work with what's in front of them. Uh, they generally have no money. And so they try to do everything in, you know, one or two takes. And that's kind of how I work now as a painter, you know, uh, everything's done in a single session, which is as close to a single take as a painter can get. And basically I work with what's there, you know, I move quickly and I see if, you know, if I see something more interesting happening along the shore, I'll pluck up, even though if I'm halfway through painting, I'll pluck up the easel and run down there, start another one. So I'm, you know, it's, it's a moving thing. And I think my, you know, small experience with, low-budget filmmaking uh, probably helps, uh, probably moved me in that direction. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I, you know, you're constantly on the on the move. Uh, you don't get rooted. You don't think I have to do this now, even if I've extended, you know, whatever, an hour. Um, and also out of that workshop, actually, I had my first experience of writing about art. Another person on the workshop started a, a literary journal called Incognito and he asked me to, mm. to write uh, art pieces for it. So I did, I wrote, a, I was doing a, a section called the, the Artist's Studio, uh, which basically I just went to uh, people I knew from NCAD, went to the studios, chatted to them and uh, I wrote these little pieces. So, uh, so since then I always thought that would be something I'd like to do again, but then, you know, the years go by quickly and uh, it had been, you know, I, I think almost 20 years gap again uh, and I hadn't written about art but uh, so, I, so I'm not sure if they're interwoven uh, but I think you know they can make interesting bedfellows. Mm. 
Well, in a similar way, uh, similar vein, I wanted to ask you about the role of reading in your practice. I suppose among the things I most enjoy about your columns is the broad scope of your contextual references, um, which frequently mine the historical canons of literature, poetry and art with a special focus on maverick painters and outsider artists. Um, so have reading and historical research become an important part of your artistic practice? That's a really interesting question uh, because, uh, you know, I seem to have been born with this uh, thirst for print. Uh, my kids draw these little caricatures of me as a bookworm. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I, I don't do any research at all, you know, I, I consciously anyway. Uh, you know, uh, with the paintings, I'm supposed to trying to do the opposite of that. I'm, I'm interested in kind of a non-verbal, non-conceptual kind of painting that I suppose expresses what words cannot. That was one of the reasons I was such a dreadful art student. You know, we were expected to, you know, have ideas and be able to express them and explain what we were doing. And that was just something I could not do. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I, you know, so I'm not sure, like, the, you know, again, there is no research with the paintings, you know. Rather than research, I suppose I'm trying to cultivate my entire being uh, into something that is better able to make these paintings, you know. I'm, I'm trying yeah. to cultivate a kind of primitive humility that responds to life and location, responds to form and texture and rhythm, uh, responds to the magic of light, uh, whether that be sun or moon. Uh, so, you know... There is no research there, you know, everything is, you know, quite the opposite. But at the same time, it probably is true that, you know, having read now nonstop since uh, I was about five or six, it probably has, you know, colored a little the way I paint. Uh, I mean, I know for certain that I have adapted uh, some uh, literary techniques like stream of consciousness. To, to painting. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that I've adapted, uh, you know, the, the writing guru, Dorothea Brand, uh, her techniques about harnessing the unconscious. I know I've adopted those to painting. And, uh, and you know, the, my last exhibition, uh, An Invite to Eternity, the idea, if you want to call it that, uh, for that came to me about 20 years ago when I first read John McGarhern's final novel, That They May Face the Rising Sun, yes. which starts a year in uh, this part of Leitrim that he uh, lived in and, and mostly wrote about. Um, and again, I was, I've always been interested with McGarren's that in, just intense familiarity with his place and the way it gives, you know, um, his, when he writes about weather and fields and wildlife, it almost has this religious intensity. Um, and, uh, you know, books definitely, you know, uh, like one book uh, that I've, been dipping in and out of for about 20 years are uh, Montaigne's essays and I know that they have shaped uh, 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 well yeah they've really shaped how I approach painting you know Montaigne uh, basically counsels uh, that you have a kind you maintain a kind of a naive amazement at every instance of experience I think somewhere he says that uh, you know you must drink quickly as though from a rapid stream that will not always flow. And I often, when I'm mid-painting, I think of that, you know, that's what I'm doing. And Montaigne, Montaigne had a, a lot to say about everything, and everything, and, uh, but it boils down to something actually very simple and useful. Uh, his philosophy is basically, don't worry about death, pay attention, read a lot, give up control, embrace imperfection, and, you know, that's basically what I do. Um, with regards, actually, the the maverick and outsider artists, uh, I've always been drawn in that direction. And I think partly it's because my first experience of making art, I was an outsider artist. Uh, you know, it, uh, there was an element of secrecy to what I did. You know, when I started secondary school and was doing art, I would never bring the stuff I was doing on my own in there. I felt there was school art, you know, it was official, it was for exams, and then it was my own private art. And, uh, you know, I lived with it, you know, I lived with the smell of paint, the paintings everywhere, as I said, on the walls, you know. Uh, and also, um, you know, I've lived, I, I've actually lived, a, I, I've, all, I've been fairly marginal all my life. So I have this, 
I, I feel connection with artists who, you know, made art against the odds, whose art was shaped by deprivation and, you know, tough living. Um, and I think, you know, uh, it's worth looking at some of these people now because a lot of the time they are just people that are, uh, you know, they're lit born and they're living outside of the glow of, um, you know, um, prosperity and opportunity. And I think that right now, you know, we're living through this moment where uh, class disparity in the arts has grown to monstrous proportions uh, and it's going to get worse in this pandemic landscape nightmare thing that we're living through. And uh, there was a big study done in the UK in 2018, I think, and it, um, you know, was ghastly, uh, the findings of how um, the numbers of people from working class backgrounds working in the arts uh, had gone, had fallen so low. You know, it, it prompted newspaper headlines like, where have all our working class artists gone? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was nowhere near in any field. The uh, I think it's meant to be a, about one third participation would be uh, healthily reflective of the general population, and in some art forms, it was down at you know ten, eleven percent. It was ghastly, and you know I really think this is something we should be shouting, all of us shouting from the rooftops about, because it makes us all poorer. Uh, you know, uh, artists like you know David Bomberg or Sheila Fell, who was a miner's daughter, or novelists like James Kellman, Ali Smith, Jeanette Winterson, or even actors like Samantha Morton, uh, all make, have made work that is radically different to their middle-class counterparts. So, you know, as this continues and as this worsens, we really do become more and more poorer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fundamentally, I agree with you. Um, so, I mean, you, you touched on, on the concept of lockdown and you also mentioned, interestingly, McGahern in relation to the familiar landscape. Yeah. Um, so some of your columns for Van um, earlier this year obviously straddled the COVID-19 lockdown. Um, in May, you poignantly reflected on the claustrophobic spaces of quarantine and the art historical legacy of isolation. Um, whereas your column in the September-October issue was more triumphant in a way, um, articulating the mad freedom of being back in the open landscape as the lockdown restrictions began to ease. Um, so one thing that struck me during this period was your descriptions of um, your immediate terrain and what it means to kind of intimately know this micro-landscape. Maybe you could remind us of some of your thinking in relation to this. Yeah, um, well, during lockdown, I became uh, increasingly interested in how, I suppose, poverty uh, can, you know, uh, cause a lot, can cause a lot of the restrictions, uh, actually, in a, in a lifelong way uh, that we were experiencing in, a, in the shorter term due to the pandemic. And, you know, I was thinking a lot about, uh, you know, uh, folk and naive and outsider artists and people like, uh, who I wrote about there, like uh, Maud Lewis, Alfred Wallace, John Krask, the Norfolk Fisherman. And, uh, and I th- for the first time it dawned on me when I sat down to write that article, how although I paint outdoors, I did feel this affinity with people whose lives were very interior and uh, restricted. And, um, you know, I suppose I thought, uh, uh, I was thinking along those lines because I suddenly felt unable to paint outside. Um, And not because, you know, it would have been perfectly safe for me to do so. Mm -hmm. Uh, I socially distance all the time anyway, you know, it would make very little difference. I think it was largely just that, you know, I wasn't able to follow uh, during those months, Montaigne's advice of don't worry about death. I was worrying about death. Mm-hmm. And so, I, so you know, all I did was, you know, I basically, uh, I just made a drawing every day, a little breakfast drawing, uh, whilst having breakfast, you know, just two, three objects on, on the table. And, uh, you know, my, my world felt, you know, very, very small. And it was almost like a meditation, you know. So, you know, someone that, uh, like myself, you know, when you haven't painted for two decades or whatever, there's always this kind of fear that you will lose it again. 
uh, that uh, you know it's easily lost and you don't take it for granted and also i think that you know what happened when you know the world seemed to brighten a little when it seemed to open was i do think then uh, in the summer i had this enormous burst of energy again and that was uh, probably reflected in the you know the the column where yeah. things you know and i think that people you know that that uh, have a long stretches where they haven't painted you do see this sometimes that there are these big bursts of energy you know you see actually see it in the work of uh, the late landscapes of david bomberg i think he hadn't painted for about 14 years and they're incredibly exuberant and i know that you know he would often paint you know uh, the the uh, darkness would fall and he'd have been painting and he'd, he'd just keep going you know and uh, so you know uh, yeah I had a big burst of painting in the, in the summer and I brought my two children with me we, we all headed off uh, and uh, partly that was because you know they were, they were cooped up a lot with homeschooling yeah. as well and I felt a little sorry for them so off we went uh, and uh, we really got to know even more uh, than I already did where we live here, you know, we just, you know, a lot of the time, you know, a lot more time was spent ambling than painting. And sometimes they were, they made it into the paintings and sometimes they didn't. And uh, it was only when I'd done, I'd done a few paintings where they did appear that I realized I wanted to paint human movement, probably because we hadn't been moving around for a long time. Mm -hmm. And uh, then uh, about seven, eight times we'd been out and I realized what was actually happening was the, they were moving out of childhood. That was the movement. And, you know, my daughter was, you know, it was her first summer as a teenager. Uh, my son is just a couple of years uh, younger. And I thought, wow, the, you know, we're, we're losing this, you know. And what I mentioned in the column is, I call it, you know, the, the lost d d domain, I think, you know, that we've, we all lose childhood. And I think these kind of things can be embodied in, in the landscape, particularly if it's, you know, where you've grown up yourself and uh, somewhere that you know very well all these feelings uh, do find form in the landscape you know i i paint a lot uh, there's this little track uh, next to this uh, primary the primary school nearby mm -hmm. and that's where i went to school it's where my mother went to school and both my children have gone to school there and i know in ways that i can't put into words that some of those feelings make it into these paintings such as this track and so there's a hawthorn tree that leans down over it and on the other side you've got this school wall and i painted again and again and again and, you know across the seasons across the years and you know i know that on one level it is just a track that leads down to the sea but you know it's obviously very autobiographical and i know that there's lots of feelings in there uh, that you know again it's outside cannot be expressed in words outside of words but uh, you know it's it's all there and I, you know I, I see it and I think other people pick up on it as well you know that aren't familiar with the area or you know they've only seen one painting of this you know and uh, so um, uh, so yeah we, we, we actually ended up having a, a pretty good summer and also it was kind of nice that I, I wasn't painting for anything in particular you know, I, I felt I felt a little bit like, you know, when I was 14 or 15, again, it was just fun and uh, aimless. And, you know, I, I suppose I felt a bit more like a, an outsider artist painting outside again. Yeah, and so the your most recent column has a, a, a different approach again. Um, the, the column for the November, December issue of Van focuses on your inclinations to paint at night. Um, maybe you could give us some insight into the pragmatics of this kind of work, perhaps in relation to your concept of the daytime scaffold, which helps you plan for the dark. Yeah, um, painting outdoors at night is almost impossible. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's why I love it so much. You almost can, cannot do it. And uh, the, the daylight scaffold, I, uh, I, again, that comes from uh, you know, just knowing the place so well, you know, I probably spend more time walking than I do painting. And it's, mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, I mean, if you just go, if you, I can't imagine, you know, because I paint in places, you know, there, there is absolutely no light, completely devoid of light. And I try to use the torch to, you know, absolute minimal level. Uh, so I really, you know, uh, I do feel sometimes like something that has, you know, emerged from a burrow. 
and I tend to be quite a mess. And you know, so I so basically the I you know before trying to paint at night anywhere, I spend a lot of time just walking along and trying to find you know where's a good where's a good spot. And I I try to memorize all of the you know the obvious pitfalls you know the briars the tangles the bog holes the loose rocks all the things that could really harm me after dark and uh, you know uh, so I do have this kind of map you know and after having done this for a few years you know I, I have lots of places that I like to go back to and you know and you know and the thing is things grow and new holes appear so you keep going back uh, to it and I hope the column uh, might uh, you know uh, illustrate how it can be desirable as an artist to become a little bit less human, uh, how can uh, you know to become a little wilder, to you know grow in a, f- a little affinity with uh, you know the the wild animals you hear rustling in the undergrowth uh, when you're when you're painting, and uh, I, um, yeah, and um, two um, two of my uh, writers I like a lot pop up in this one. Uh, there's uh, Sir Thomas Brown. And the uh, Scottish, the 19th century Scottish clergyman who wrote wonderful sermons, uh, Thomas Chalmers, and they drop uh, their coins into the pool, uh, mostly about the spiritual uh, uh, nature of the night sky. Uh, and uh, But I'm even more excited that I, I was writing the column and uh, two badgers emerged from their set that I'd actually forgotten about that I'd seen once when I was painting and mm-hmm. so they ambled into the column and that's one of the wonderful things about writing and uh, sometimes these things that you barely remember or don't remember at all uh, you sit down and you suddenly there they are at the end of a sentence or in the middle of a mm-hmm. sentence and uh, you so so again like with writing you know you don't know what's going to happen and at painting at night you really don't know what's going to happen uh, so um, you know pen, most pen, night paintings don't work out and again that's very important uh, because, you know, you have to, um, you know, it works better for me to be in a frame of mind that, you know, most likely it's not going to work out in that fairly relaxed, you know, uh, way, you know, it's again, giving up control and embracing imperfection. And um, also painting at night makes painting at day seem an awful lot easier. So uh, you, you, it, it grounds you quite well. Mm-hmm. Actually, I, I don't mention, I don't talk about this in the column, but I've just realised it now that um, the daylight scaffold, the walking I do for for painting, uh, the fact that sometimes you know I go walking with all my stuff, and I don't set up my easel at all. I just come back having walked, not painted. Uh, it probably actually goes back to Ross eighty four, and you know being so taken, uh, being so rooted in the spot by Richard Long. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my paintings have involved so many lines made by walking. Uh, I've literally created, you know, I've stamped my lines into all the fields nearby, just searching for places to paint. So, you know, it, it, it probably it probably all joins up in a circle. I probably am walking around in circles at this stage in a very small place, rarely leaving five kilometres. Uh, and uh, I hope to continue for many years to come. I hope so too. Uh, Cornelius, that was brilliant. I want to thank you so much for your time today and also obviously for your ongoing contributions to Van. I know readers thoroughly enjoy your plein air column for the personal and art historical insights into painting practice that you generously provide. So thank you. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful to chat. Next up, I spoke to Frank Wasser, an Irish artist and writer who lives and works in London. Frank is a lecturer and art educator at Tate Modern and a PhD candidate at the Ruskin School of Art, which is the fine art department of the University of Oxford. Frank's column for the November-December issue is called Word Upon Word Upon Fallen Word and traces the historical significance of text-based art in the work of American conceptual artist Lawrence Wiener. Okay, so you, you've written a column for the November-December issue of the Visual Artist Newsheet, which be- begins with a description of your childhood encounter with an artwork by American conceptual artist Lawrence Wiener. Um, the work in question was commissioned for Ross 84 and involved dual statements in English and Irish, which were painted on the side of the Guinness Hop Store in Dublin. 
Uh, do you know much about this piece? Um, I know Wiener has a permanent artwork on the grounds of Emma as well. Yeah, I mean, my initial encounter, which I was sort of recalling at, at the as a kind of a pretext to this text in a way, when I started writing this text, I thought about well, what 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 have been my sort of uh, initial encounters with Lawrence Wiener's work, mm -hmm. and I I remembered that the initial encounter was maybe being seven or eight years old, and I, I grew up very close to the Guinness factory in the Liberties, and at that time there was sort of a I was in a play, let's say, on the road where where the house was, and every now and again I'd kind of take a wander around the area, and I remember coming across this piece and being, I suppose, confused by it, actually, because my encounter with text in a kind of a public space like that was mostly advertising or for the text to declare uh, the site that you're in. So, for example, if you look to the left, if you were standing in front of that piece by Lawrence Wiener, you see the, the Guinness gates, basically, with the Guinness logo right across the front of it. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember a kind of this confusion um, falling or sort of somehow collapsing into uh, me trying to understand what was that that I, that I was looking at and why was it there. Years, years, uh, years and years later, um, while I was, I think, maybe in a second year or third year student um, at uh, NCAD, um, I came across the piece again. And uh, I, I had read a little bit about Lawrence Wiener, but it was sort of a I had never realised that there was a Lawrence Wiener so close to home, basically. Mm -hmm. So initially, I didn't know much about the piece. And then I went to try and find out a little bit about the piece. And it took some time, actually, to, to find any information on, I think, I said it was a Ross KT384. Um, and I think I've, I stopped looking for information on the piece. And... I think it came to light again when my friend Sam, Sam Kiao, was retelling me a story that, that I think Sean Lynch told him about the Richard Sarah, which is on sort of inset into the ground, yes. very close close to the, to the Lawrence Wiener piece. And I don't know the details for sure, or the gossip, I should say, but I think that Richard Sarah piece wasn't really what Richard Sarah originally had in mind, but there were kind of issues with uh, the, the final kind of artwork that he came up. Uh, with mm -hmm. um, and it was kind of at that moment that I, I found out that the, the Lawrence Wiener piece had been commissioned for that exhibition in um, the early 80s um, and then I found out more about the piece uh, around the time of um, I think there was a big uh, anniversary right or Rusk just a few years ago yeah uh, yeah so no I didn't actually know so much about the piece initially um, and so you mentioned Wiener's belief in the capacity of art to uh, somehow alter someone's perception of their entire existence. And you're also describing this as your, your, the first time you began to think critically about an artwork. Um, so I'm wondering, is there a correlation between these two positions? Yeah, I think that in one way it's in hindsight and in another way it was in the moment of encountering the work for the first time and for the second time with the knowledge of, of what the, the sculpture was. So I think that um, the, for the first time, it, it was this, this confusion which I described, which led me to kind of search for clues in a way. It led me to think about the buildings around me. It led me to think about the tram lines below. The second time as, a, as an art student beginning to kind of think I suppose, like an artist, um, I was more thinking about um, the context of how, La how Lawrence Wiener came to be asked to do a work in this place and what he may have thought about in, in creating that, that sculpture or, you know, the invitation of that sculpture. So in a way, the, the entire existence, I mean, the perception of my, my entire existence was more a play in the first encounter with the work the second encounter with the work um, was just a kind of a different expansion on that, in a way. Mm -hmm. um, so as you said, you went on to study art and work in the arts. Um, maybe you could discuss um, your background and experience. I know you, you work at Tate uh, currently. Um, what's the situation there at the moment? 
Yeah, so I moved to, to London in 2012 and with the intent, I originally worked as part of a residency in the schools and teachers program and the learning department at Tate. Mm-hmm. And I also worked for um, Tino Segal for, for a few months. He had a piece in the turbine hall called These Associations. Um, and at the end of the residency at Tate, I had made this sort of uh, uh, performance lecture tour on some of the works in the some sort of alternative histories of some of the works in the institutions. And somebody in the department um, uh, saw this and said, would you like to do kind of ordinary lectures and ordinary tours in a way. And I knew that that, that job would provide me with a, the, the possibility to continue practicing in, in London. Um, and so I began to kind of work in an unusual way at that institution, which was ac- across different departments. So I'm not, I wasn't sort of part of the, the learning department. I do a bit of work for development, a bit of work for curatorial. Um, wherever there was sort of a gig to be picked up in many respects. Um, the current situation is that there's, I think, a statement due to be announced from uh, the PCS branch, Tate United, and Tate, possibly at the time of this recording in, in, in the next day or two. Um, and yeah, the Tate United campaign have been sort of on strike for 40 days up until last month. Um the current situation really is that 313 people have been made redundant, but also that there's there's been a lot of um, uh, decisions made in the institution that have affected the work of freelance workers, researchers and educators as well, much like myself. So I suppose without going into too much detail, I came off furlough in June and, you know, I suppose I could have been kept on furlough to October. It's not possible for me to do the work that I would usually do in the museum at the moment. This is something that's going to happen across the arts in the United Kingdom um, and in London in particular on the South Bank. There are thousands of redundancies at the National Theatre, at the South Bank Centre and possibly more redundancies ahead of Tate. And I think that this is, you know, it's easy to kind of build a correlation between this and the current pandemic. And of course, it's it's difficult, particularly for smaller galleries. Um, but it would be naive to think that this is not the result of um, a conservative government that's been in power for, for 10 years. Um, so I, I guess in the context of your, of your column, uh, as well as an appraisal of Wiener's practice, you've, you're also tracing some historical developments in text-based art, with reference to artists like Bruce Nauman and Jenny Holzer. Um, maybe you could describe some of the specific artworks you're mentioning in the column. Yeah, I mean, it's it, in a way there could have been um, many different works to include and, and to trace that history um, across multiple different contexts. I kind of stayed very much within, within the United States and I suppose picked two works that I felt were examples of text-based art, but maybe the context and the materials used to make them were um, or the invitation of the work to use the vocabulary of, of, of Wiener was very, very different. So um, the Nauman piece was his, that I mentioned was his first neon piece, and it's called The True Artist Helps the World by Revealing Mystic Truths. Mm-hmm. And he made the piece after an encounter with a a neon advertisement for beer, which was left over in his, in his studio in San Francisco in 1968. Um, and he's also given other interviews over the years where he spoke about leaving that studio in the evening time and walking down, you know, these long boulevards and coming across these neon lights and noticing that that was the, the sort of visual vocabulary of the culture mm-hmm. that he was within. So he was responding to the wider culture in the same way, you know, artists associated with pop were using... Um, cartoons or the visual vocabulary of advertising in their in their paintings this was sort of this was a similar dynamic in a way Mm -hmm. in terms of the content of the work the true artist tells the world by revealing the truths i'm not entirely sure what we as viewers we're not really entirely sure what truths or mystic truths are being um alluded to here um and in a way that that that's a kind of a throwback to 
thinking about the 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 promise of advertising. You know, the advertising always sort of promises this 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 product or this object which will never really get um, some sort of object of, of, of desire, really. Mm-hmm. Um, with the Jenny Hoser work, I mean that was um, that was sort of to to skip along a few years in a way into, into the mid-1970s. And this was a work which, you know, if we think about Nauman's, which was, um, you know, static neon light sculpture that you could come across in a small gallery in New York and then since, which has been in various different museum shows around the world, Jenny Holzer's piece was a, diff- it was a different type of distribution of the work. Um, she was She was participating in the Whitney Museum's Independent Study Programme and I think one of the things that I mentioned very briefly in, in the piece is that that was a time when there was a lot of changing conversations around the structure of sharing knowledge and, and art education in the United States and actually in, in, in the UK and Ireland as well. And there was, you know, a lot of different uh, philosophical uh, pedagogies that were being kind of brought into art school education. Um, and at the Whitney's Museum, uh, Whitney Museum's independent study program, there was sort of a, a, a reading list which each participating artist was asked to kind of um, not just respond to, but study and, and interpret in their own way as well. So the final question I wanted to ask you was in relation to your current research interests as a doctoral candidate at Ruskin School of Art. Um, maybe you could discuss your current research as well as maybe insights into the college and the lectures. I know your supervisor is Katrina Palmer um, and she uses text in her work quite a lot. Yeah, text-based arts has always sort of featured very heavily in, in, in the work that I make. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in a way, that has, that has changed over the years in, in my, my BA and my master's. It was a sort of, um, well, there was a confusion around what, what, how I could fold my interest and my practice of writing into my work. Um, one mm-hmm. of the reasons being that, you know, writing is kind of treated as this separate type of material when you're at art school. Yeah. Um, you know, you have the 80-20 setup and um, studio practice and then you do your visual culture class. And I had an amazing visual culture teachers and classes, but I always felt that something was kind of a bit off about being uh, asked to use this material in a way that didn't quite fit with what, what, how you might kind of investigate or use materials in the studio. So I kind of had a fear of writing in many respects um, or a complex around writing that, um, you know, lasted for quite a few years from my BA and into my master's. Um, that, that sort of changed over the years. I, I think when I look back, a lot of the, the large text pieces that I made were very much in conversation with a wider history of text-based art. Um, at the moment, I suppose my own interest in um, writing as a material comes from comes from a kind of an interest in in not being a space to construct ideas or deconstruct ideas. Um, so, in a way, uh, to maybe to describe a little bit about what I'm doing, what I'm interested in at the moment in terms of my, my PhD, um, it's how the voice sits on or off page, and how we might, for example score a voice on page um, and within that there's sort of case studies so one of the things that I'm looking at in my, my research uh, project at the moment is a, a report called the Colds Report uh, which was a, a report written to um, advise changes in art education in the United Kingdom in the 1960s which led to actually the establishment of um, supplementary or sorry, I should say kind of complementary studies. So the 80-20 sort of system mm-hmm. that exists across art schools, which was a bit, which in the end was signed off by um, Margaret Thatcher in 1970. Um, so I, I'm sort of interested in, in the kind of residual tone or I- ideologies um, that exist in, in the forming of, of pedagogies. And in that analysis, writing is something that needs to be looked at very, very closely. Um, 
and yeah, obviously my 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 supervisors, uh, Lee Triming and, and Katrina Palmer in particular, I suppose there's been aspects of of um, uh, kind of an uh, an experience of studenthood through writing in their practice, most most noticeably with Katrina Palmer's the the dark object from 2010. But all this research has kind of taken place at the same time as you know, in um, speaking over Zoom, trying to figure out what way crits work over Zoom, mm-hmm. and the university really wanted kind of trying to push on with things. Um, and I, I personally, I find myself in a situation where I feel I'm, I'm not sure any of this works. Like maybe we need to kind of stop a little bit and take stock and ask, can can the sort of existing pedagogies that we would refer to in, in the studio or wider context of art education um, work this way. Um, uh, yeah, and I suppose another aspect of my research at the moment, moment is to look at the platforms, to look at the actual platforms that the, some of the making takes place in. So um, partially I'm, I'm analysing the, the origins of uh, Microsoft PowerPoint and Microsoft Word in the early 1980s um, and find, finding unsurprisingly that, that a lot of the aesthetic of those programs was, uh, is influenced by pre-existing visual vocabularies in the world. So for example, in the building in Silicon Valley where Microsoft PowerPoint was, was created in the early 1990s, um, there was an art collection which can, was comprised of, uh, you know, works by Sola Witt, works by, um, very minimal artists works to kind of look a little bit like the, uh, you know, the screen, the um, uh, a Microsoft Word, uh, the what's the word I'm looking for? The um, interface. Oh, sorry. Um, so the interface. So if we look, if we look at sort of Zoom now, we get this kind of like grey bar at the top, this huge open rectangle. Um, these visual vocabularies didn't come from nowhere. Mm-hmm. So I guess in my research practice, there's loads of things on the table. There's that kind of um, focus on writing. There is the, um, there's looking at this PowerPoint work and there's, um, there's also a number of kind of different characters that, that, that kind of contaminate that research as well. So there's a kind of unarticulated interest in, in uh, Brendan Bean <laughs> in, relation, in relation to the Coldstream report. And I don't know whether that's because... You know, the Coldstream report was sort of um, brought about by Sir William Coldstream, who in, in many respects is a sort of polar opposite to somebody like Brandon Bain. But that's kind of one of the unknowns in the practice that I have to, um, uh, have to figure out. That sounds really fascinating. Um, that's brilliant. Uh, I want to thank you very much for your time today and also for your fascinating column for the van. Um, I want to wish you all the best with your studies and do keep in touch with us. Thanks, Jazz. Pleasure talking to you. Thank you. You have been listening to The Van Podcast, a podcast series by Visual Artist Ireland. These podcast interviews are being published every two months on SoundCloud. 